It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest. First of all, I need to tell you about something called Labo NFC. Now, it's been around for a couple of years. It's a research and strategic intelligence unit focused on research innovation and knowledge transfer related to the emergence of new forms of consumption. So here we are, we're talking, this has been around for a couple of years, studying new forms of consumption, and here we go with the pandemic, and all of a sudden, the study of new forms of consumption gets accelerated. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Miriam Ertz to the program. Dr. Ertz is an assistant professor in marketing at the University of Quebec at Chicoutimi, and is also the director of Labo NFC. See, Dr. Ertz, Miriam, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to have you with us. There's a lot to learn here about this, uh, the study of new types of consumerism. Tell us a little bit more about Labo NFC, please. Well, Labo NFC is actually a research unit that's focused on studying the new forms of uh, consumption. It uh, revolves mainly around two key axes. Uh, one of them is the responsible consumption phenomenon, so everything that includes uh, green consumption, local consumption, and uh, all related kinds of consumption. And the other is more oriented towards digital consumption. So it can, includes mobile, it includes social networks, and um, all these different kinds of uh, areas of research. Okay, so now why, why was this started in the first place, Miriam? Take us back to 2017 and, and the, the notion that caused this laboratory to be conceived. Yeah, well, actually, these different kinds of consumption have emerged a couple of decades ago. If we speak just of green consumption, it appeared in the 1990s. But what we actually saw towards the 2008-2009 is we had this big financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And actually, it, it changed the pattern of consumption for many people because, uh, of course, many jobs were lost in the process. And uh, then after the, the, the economy recovered, but we still had some problems with regards to purchasing power that was still low. And these this different aspects, actually, of the economics had, of course, a very uh, direct impact on consumption um, mood uh, of people. Right. And so this, this drove us, actually, to um, think about it more deeply and to, to um, have this uh, hypothesis that something will change in the future. Um, it's, it's not going to continue like that. And at one point, there will be a catalyst which will change everything. We really didn't expect it to be a pandemic, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought it would be something else. We thought it would be uh, perhaps um, another crisis or another unexpected phenomenon. It happened to be a pandemic. And so, indeed, here we are. And uh, we are witnessing all these changes that we kind of knew we, they would appear, but now they're very, very concrete in our everyday life. And so the financial crisis of 2008-9 was the reason that the study of consumer habits and changing consumer habits due to a, a global crisis, and all of a sudden the study begins at that time, or it occurs to people that, that these, these sorts of events 
cause massive global consumer habit changes. And here we are several years later now with another global crisis on our hands. And and Miriam, has it confirmed the suspicions in the first place back in 08, 09? Well, we need to start studying changing habits. And here we are 10 years later or a little more uh, and confirming, I would imagine, that a lot of those habits not only have changed, but here's why they've changed and how they've changed, correct? Yes, exactly. Well, um, an important part is, of course, the, the moving towards all the online consumption mm-hmm. um, phenomenon. So we have more and more people actually uh, doing their consumption online, and it, it really um, reaches very uh, far um, frontiers. I mean, for example, uh, even the uh, meeting applications, so to meet people, now it's everything goes online, um, everything happens online. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also the phenomenon of electronic sport that actually uh, took a huge leap during the pandemic because uh, since uh, sport events were forbidden sure. at least for the public, so a lot of these uh, events now actually, um, well, if e-sport phenomenon actually took uh, more uh, importance in regards to that. So we have really this move towards um, digital uh, sphere and a lot of things also regarding money, for example. Money is less and less tangible. It's more and more uh, digital. And we have less and less use of cash in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And uh, social networks also are, are driving on that and have also Facebook, for example, that has well that had a project to uh, to unleash a new digital uh, currency. I think it was called DM, and they dropped the project, but they still have things in their uh, in their in their head to to move forward with regards to that. So what we mentioned in the article is that we see the emergence of a total. Uh, consumption, uh, total digital consumption ecosystem that is emerging where everything can ha- actually happen online, which wasn't um, like that a few, li- few years True. ago. But the, pandem- the pandemic really changed that. Yes, and it's interesting you would mention online gaming, Miriam, because you're absolutely right. You you talk to anyone who who monitors the activities of, of these sorts of things, and you're you're right. The 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 increase in activity is phenomenal. One of the things that has emerged out of the University of Quebec at Chicoutimi and this lab is an expression or a word. It's digitalocalism. And it came out of the French language and has been exported to the English-speaking world. What is digilocalism? Yeah, it's the contraction between digital and localism. And it's kind of the merging of the two axes I talked to you about Mm -hmm. earlier. So the digital consumption world and the local consumption world, which is more related to responsible consumption. And digilocalism actually is... um, we saw it in Quebec. Perhaps it's the same in other uh, parts of Canada. I'm very sure it's the, it's the case. Um, here we saw the emergence of uh, small platforms that actually gather uh, different merchants uh, of the, the region, so local merchants. Most of them are from, from Quebec. Mm-hmm. And in order to um, continue to uh, market their products to the customers, they decided to gather and to create... Um, online spaces, so they are like online malls, if you like, and um, so some merchants can continue to to, to uh, sell their goods online, and it's also a way to um, 
to prevent, well, actually to give the opportunity to people to purchase online, but not necessarily on Amazon or on other uh, tech giants. Right, right. And uh, it gives an opportunity to local merchants to continue to survive. Our guest is Dr. Miriam Ertz, who is a, a, a professor of marketing and director of Labo NFC at the University of Quebec and one of four co-authors of a piece that we saw online on theconversation.com. And here's the first paragraph. And Miriam, I'll come right to you after this. This sets it all up. Retail giants like Amazon, and you've mentioned them, are blurring the boundaries of consumption. But thanks to platforms that link online consumption to local interests, the desire to buy local, a trend fueled by the pandemic, is now giving rise to a new phenomenon known as digital localism. And Miriam Etz, that's where we were uh, talking about digital uh, digital localism uh, just before the news break. This is simply a, a, a phrase to identify new consumer patterns that have been developing for the pandemic has exacerbated these patterns. But how long have they been moving to this digital uh, direction? Many years or just a few? Well, uh, for most of them, uh, just a few. It it was kind of an emergency uh, because most of them were used to uh, selling in their stores. Mm -hmm. Uh, But of course, when the pandemic hit, they had to close their stores and they couldn't actually reach their consumers So when that happened, the Quebec government uh, launched a program that was called uh, Le Panier Bleu, uh, which is uh, the blue basket, Mm -hmm. uh, if I translate literally. Yes. And this was actually an an online um, database with all the different local merchants in each city of Quebec. But it was not very well done in the sense that people couldn't buy necessarily on this website, they really had to go um, to the the store, well, to the website of the store. Most of them didn't sell online, so it really wasn't a very efficient marketplace. And in order to um, make up for that, other um, local platforms emerged, like Amazon Quebec, uh, Boomerang, Jachette Lac, and these were actually online uh, virtual malls where the different merchants who used to have a store could have an online presence and could sell uh, their goods to consumers. So they pi- they, the they, they put they pooled their their assets and created an online shopping mall so that at least exactly. uh, consumers could go in any given community. Oh, here's where all the merchants are. They they're now they put one website together. I would think Miriam more than anything else this is the education involved in this has made retailers and consumer-oriented businesses of every size completely understand how important a digital presence is in 2021. Completely. Uh, before, actually, they uh, kind of knew it, but they didn't see the urge sure. or the, yeah, the, the, the reason to, to invest because it's a question of money as well. Yep. So they really didn't do anything about it. But, of course, when they were forced to um, find alternatives to um, um, sell their goods and services to their customers, well, they they really had to go together and to go online especially. 
So this was really uh, what we call the catalyst, which made these local merchants uh, really move online. And it's it's really part of something much bigger uh, that is usually termed the numeric, numeric transition or the digital transition mm-hmm. um, in, in general. And so this is just one part of it. And it's the consumption part of it. Of course, there are many, many other areas. There is uh, in production industry 4.0 that is also something very big right now. And uh, it's developing too. And again, the pandemic uh, also had an influence in this area because more and more factories now try to be uh, completely um, connected well, with all the different machines and uh, uh, equipment that is connected online and sometimes uh, to a cloud uh, computing platform. So it, it's really something, this digital localism phenomenon that is related to a much bigger trend. Well, of course, and uh, the a lot of local merchants have learned the hard way in many cases that without that digital profile, without the online access, they really have uh, reduced their chances for success by an extraordinary percent. So more and more small businesses right across Canada are moving into uh, moving more aggressively online. So this is also producing an interesting new industry across Canada too, isn't it, Miriam? All of these small companies that help other small companies develop a digital profile. There's a, there's, it's, it's almost a cottage industry now, isn't it? Yes, uh, completely. Uh, there is um, this term that is um, used, it's digital marketplaces. Right. And these are actually um, providers that provide um, everything included solutions for local merchants to really move all the business online. And um, for, for merchants that weren't used to online activities, it can be sometimes very challenging because it's such a big industry, as you mentioned, and there are so many providers to choose from. You have Shopify, you have the big ones, but you have also the small ones. Mm-hmm. You have uh, some local players here in Quebec. For example, we have uh, Mediavor, Divor, and these are all different providers from which it is uh, actually kind of hard to choose from when you have never heard of uh, online or e-commerce in the past. Sure. Uh, because they, they use very specific terminology, very specific uh, processes, and um, for most business, kind of hard to adjust. Well, the good thing is that these solutions are usually very easy to implement. Right. Uh, the, the challenge is to choose the good one for your business, and that really can be a big challenge for many. No question about it. Uh, final question to you, Dr. Ertz, and it's great to have you with us this morning. You talk about this is probably unfair because you, I'm opening a whole other door. But in your article with you and your colleagues at theconversation.com, Miriam, you talk about the era of the consumer supplier. You talk about consumers have, have be, become strictly buyers over the years, but that's changing. What do you mean by the consumer supplier era? Yeah, well, this is another trend that we actually observed uh, for the last decade. Uh, it, it refers again back to 2008 and uh, the global crisis, and it actually touches on something that is um, really um, in an other area, and it's called uh, collaborative consumption or mm-hmm. the sharing economy. Most of us have heard of it in a very negative way. Well, in, in some negative ways, because uh, many platforms of this economy, like Uber or, or Airbnb, 
have been in many cases, especially in Quebec, criticized for taking uh, the jobs of taxi drivers and well, disrupting uh, established industries. Mm -hmm. But what actually um, the idea of a platform is that um, it's a a meeting, it's a marketplace between providers and buyers. Mm -hmm. And providers now can be anyone. On Kijiji, for example, uh, you can sell things, you can give away things, you can swap things. Sure. And anyone now can be a provider to uh, other individuals. Sure. And this is also something that is very disruptive because we are used to have businesses that sell goods and services to people who are consumers. And now we have actually um, these consumers, the same consumers that that can be either uh, users or providers. And that's also a a huge game changer, and that's going to have some lasting impact over the the coming years. Indeed it is. Uh, Dr. Miriam Ertz, it's great to have you on the program. Let me commend the article that you and your three other colleagues from Université de Québec à Shkutsumi have written. It's called, How Online Markets Are Helping Local Stores Survive COVID-19. It's a great read. Here's the first sentence from an article in a recent McLean's piece. It's the ultimate first world problem. With the economy trapped in the most grueling crisis in decades, Canadians are sitting on the largest cash hoard in recorded history, thanks to the pandemic-era lockdowns, and they don't know what to do with it all. This uh, put McLean's onto writing an article entitled, What to Do with All the Cash You've Saved During the Pandemic. The reporter set out and uh, talked to a number of Canadians about what to do. One of the people quoted very extensively in the McLean's article is our next guest. She is a Toronto uh, financial planner, founder of a, an outfit called Caring for Clients. She is Rona Birnbaum. Rona, good morning. Welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Silver, and good morning, everybody in British Columbia. Thank you for the invitation. Well, you're welcome. Let's talk a little bit about where all this money comes from, because uh, some of us are going, what cash? And others are going, wait a second, this is crazy. I got lots of dough. What's what's the background here, Rona? Well, the background is that the pandemic has affected Canadians very differently. Uh, those that whose uh, work life have not really been interrupted financially, um, but who aren't able to do some of the things that they normally do, uh, travel and entertainment, etc. They're building up cash, while individuals that have had job loss are struggling just to get by. Indeed. So it's a, it's a strange it's a strange feeling for, for some people to be in, to have all this cash. There's a little sometimes a little bit of guilt associated with it, so we're helping people figure out what to do with it. Well, that's a good point, because, uh, you know, you're quite right. In It's such a strange outcome that we find ourselves in, because there, there are still people in the hospitality and service industry, and Rona, you and I both know people in that business who, who have been wiped out who are just literally just stranded looking for what their next move might be. They don't know. And on the other hand, many of us have gone through this whole thing with absolute minimum of interruption in terms of the cash flow. We may be working from home, but for now we're still working for the same wage and not spending as much, thus the cash surplus for some of us, right? 
Exactly right, Silver. You nailed it. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about about what to do with the money. And one of the things that you recommend, and it makes perfect sense, any kind of windfall should first and foremost produce the option to eliminate debt. That makes the most sense, doesn't it? It does in most cases. By debt, though, I mean consumer debt. So credit card debt, high-interest car loans, personal lines of credit. I, I don't know that I would throw mortgages into the, into the same bucket, um, because when you pay down a mortgage, you can't just automatically pull the money back out if you have a shortfall. So you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about that. Sure, yeah. But certainly, certainly consumer debt is something that is worth attacking right off the bat. And that's the high-interest stuff. That's the credit card stuff, the stuff that really, really eats away at your cash supply if you don't pay attention to it, right? Well, and it does because it's tricky. It doesn't require, those debts don't require you to pay very much um, in, in service payments sure. every month. So it's a bit of a trap. You feel like you're, you're doing what you need to do, but really the debt is growing and growing um, every day. Well, that's the other half of, of what's going on these days, Rona, and we need to talk about that because we were talking about it earlier, and we'll talk about it with Mike Campbell, our money guy, later in the hour. The governor of the Bank of Canada has literally bent over backwards to assure us that as far as he's concerned, interest rates are going to remain at this historically, ridiculously low level for quite some time in order to stimulate the economy. Well, the economy, it turns out, is actually starting to tingle a little bit faster than perhaps some of us had expected. And so interest rates, they're not going to go shooting up overnight or anything, Rona, but it's also wise to assume they may not stay as low as the Bank of Canada thinks they may. Absolutely. And um, the trap that that can uh, many people fall into is saying, well, if, if my interest rate is so low, what is the incentive to, to pay it down? Sure. Uh, there are more productive things that I can do with my money. And that may be true. I mean, it might be better to, you know, make an RSP contribution than pay down low interest debt. Uh, so that can be mathematically correct. However, uh, your point that interest rates will inevitably rise in the future mm-hmm. uh, suggests that the more aggressively you make payments on low interest debt now, the more of your money is actually reducing the principal. So that when rates ultimately do rise, you've got a lower debt outstanding and therefore you're, you're less vulnerable and impacted by those higher rates. Okay, so uh, the other part of the, of the story that that and the part about the two things that brought you to my attention. One, you talk about a balanced approach, which mm-hmm. in weird times is something that's always welcome to hear about. People appreciate balance, don't they, Rona? And also, you talk about uh, you talk about you know, not depriving yourself completely of this perhaps newfound or unexpected uh, cash. Yes, take care of debt. Yes, take care of of financial housekeeping, as you call it. But there's no problem or there's nothing wrong with a small reward for yourself either, is there? No, and I think that should be always the case. It's a, it's a little easier uh, at this point to justify uh, treating ourselves because regardless of how this pandemic has affected us, it, it has um, resulted in a life that none of us really want or are particularly enjoying fully. And so it's, it's a little, I'm finding it 
for myself and with others, it's easier to justify that expense. But I, I think at any point in time, it's, it's important to strike that, that balance between um, doing the things that are prudent, both for the short term and the long term, while actually living fully in the moment. And money helps one do that. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and I'll add to that, because if your approach is one of strict discipline and constraint, and there isn't any opportunity for you to enjoy, uh, then you're you're gonna you're gonna run out of energy. You know, it's it's like a diet. If you can never have a cookie, uh, you're gonna blow up one day, and you're gonna eat the whole box. Right? <laughs> so it needs there needs to be a, a, a balance between both. The, the, the really smart things with your money and the things that just give you satisfaction in the here and now. And I just want to add one more thing, that um, with this disparity of experience with the pandemic, what many people with excess cash are doing, and I'm encouraging them to think about this if they haven't till this point, is to increase their giving. And many of our clients are giving in a different way now. They're redirecting some of their philanthropy and their donations uh, into the more grassroots um, areas Mm -hmm. that need help, right? So people that just need food and support and um, really kind of more, um, I don't know, feet on the ground impact with their money. And and if, if, you know, those of you are out there that just don't quite know if, what to do with the excess that you have, and you're feeling very privileged. Um, there are so many needs within uh, your city that um, that money could could make a difference. Joined on the line from Toronto by Rona Berenbaum from uh, Caring for Clients. Rona is a financial planner, one of many uh, people interviewed by McLean's Magazine as they were trying to figure out what Canadians are uh, trying to do or going to do with the cash they've saved during the pandemic, assuming, of course, you have cash to save. But I think one of the things that you, you were quoted in the McLean's article is saying, Rona, was many people were surprised at how easy it was to save. A, when you can't go out and spend a lot, that helps a lot. And then, of course, a little extra boost for some made it surprisingly easy. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and it, it's, it's I chuckle a little bit when, when I hear this because for years when we work with clients and we encourage them to make some lifestyle adjustments in order to redirect some of their income to other priorities that they say, and they say those other priorities are important. Mm-hmm. And yet, for some reason, they just can't find a way um, to redirect um, their money. Mm-hmm. And 2020, all of a sudden, uh, it seems so much easier, and it's simply because we had no option. Right. So, so what, what that means to me is that the, the obstacle was, is really ourselves, and and you know if an, if some other objective, whether it's building an emergency fund or paying down debt, is truly a priority, uh, it, it it really is just about trade offs. And I and people are discovering that it's not as hard. It's it's just that they get in their own way when they don't have to make that decision. It's not a forced decision for them. You talked. Uh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so so I think it's exciting because it, it gives people an opportunity to realize that they, they, they are in choice. They can be in choice. And so their go-forward um, spending decisions, I think, hopefully, will be made with, um, with a little bit more thoughtfulness and the realization that 
uh, you have more choice than you think. Well, that's it. And you were talking earlier, as I, I rudely interrupted you, uh, about that discipline. You were talking about the the terribly buttoned down, ultra disciplined uh, mm-hmm. person. Not not many of us fit into that category, Rona. Most of us try to do the right mm-hmm. thing and try to manage our money. And if there's a little more of it around to manage, how successful are we typically? Well, left to our own devices. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, yeah, not that great. Um, but that goes. That's not just about money. That's about our health. That's about our relationships. That's, I think, the way many people approach all things in our life. Is that we're, we're the decisions we make are what is easiest and feels best for us in the moment, mm-hmm. in all aspects of our life. So, um, and, and money is, is no different. And, and the, you know, the antidote to that is, is different for, for everyone. Um, but the one thing I will say is that you don't necessarily need a, a financial planner or a financial advisor to make progress in your life um, financially. It's helpful because then that you have an accountability partner and you have somebody that can help you make sense of things. But at the end of the day, you still have to make the decisions and, and, and execute your choices. So, so the most important thing I think is just to, to recognize that you, you are, you have what it takes to uh, be thoughtful about your money and be proud of the decisions that you make. And I think, though, uh, most Canadians would, however grudgingly, admit to being not terribly financially literate. So the opportunity to have even a sounding board, a professional person with knowledge of the money biz, to just bounce ideas of, should I do this? Is this a good idea? I mean, look at all this Reddit Robin Hood stuff in the last couple of weeks. That scared the bejeepers out of a few uh, uh, weak uh, uh, would-be investors. Uh, yeah. So, again, it, it's... Uh, I I think there's the, the the opportunity to partner with a professional shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, well, you're speaking to the converted. I've been doing that for 30 years. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you know what? I'll tell you, um, Silver, the, the real challenge, and, and it'd be interesting to hear from your, your listeners about this, um, but what I find is that there's just, um, Canadians just don't know who they can trust to get that good point uh, sound advice and and a big reason for that is because most financial professionals uh, are uh, you know product sales people in advisory clothing and ultimately the relationship is is based on on product sales right uh, but but the good news is Sterling there's a growing number of uh, fee-only financial planners that give pure advice. You know, it's much more like going to a lawyer or an accountant. Right. And there's a whole bunch of great ones in BC, I'll say. So um, the, there, there are more and more avenues for Canadians to get that sounding board kind of uh, kind of relationship. Right. Without feeling that just every every time you open your mouth, there's going to be a fee for that. Uh, the fee for service, you pay for your your annual bit. You're not paying commissions and carrying charges. And every time right. you, you buy or sell, you're paying somebody something. That's not the way you work. And it's not necessarily the way anybody with money has to work either. Exactly. It's very common in the U.S. And as many trends are, they take a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of time to get to Canada. 
uh, we were a bit early 21 years ago, but now it's, it's really, I think it's the future of the industry. You don't, you want to speak to somebody who's giving you pure advice and doesn't have any secondary objectives uh, for you. And let me uh, recommend, then, let me recommend your website, uh, cl- caring for clients, plural, caringforclients.com. You want to see what a, a, a fee for service financial planner looks like? Go to caringforclients.com and there's a fetching <laughs> picture of Rona right there on the front page. <laughs> Rona, oh, silver. Thanks very much for this. Good to talk to you. We'll, we'll do this again. I'd love to. There's Rona Beerenbaum, caringforclients.com. As of yesterday, the uh, new Dine Out Vancouver season has commenced, and it is one of the longest in the history of this much-loved Vancouver event. And it also contains a record number of participating restaurants from West Van to White Rock. Here to talk about it is the director of the uh, Dine Out Vancouver, Lucas Pavan is with us. He's the festival director and also uh, with Tourism Vancouver. Lucas, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you back on the program. Good morning, Surly. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, this one runs right through until March 7th, and it's it's a longer, more extended version of Dine Out Vancouver, Lucas, and this is all about uh, pandemic realities more than anything else, isn't it? It absolutely is. Um, restaurants are operating at 50% capacity of what they would normally be operating at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've extended dine out to 31 days to give both restaurants and the public an opportunity to sample as many restaurants as they can. Okay. Now, Lucas, for the benefit of those, and yet we, I'm assuming perhaps too much here. I, I, I have a son in the restaurant industry. I've been a, 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 an enthusiastic participant in dine out Vancouver for many years, but let's assume someone's listening to us for the very first time and and is sitting there in their kitchen having a cup of coffee going what on earth is dine out vancouver help them out lucas certainly and there's always newcomers to our city so every year there are people that um, have never heard of dine out before but essentially it's canada's largest celebration of food and drink we started in 2003 so this is our 19th year Um, and it's a promotional campaign that supports metro vancouver restaurants during a slow period of the year uh, and features specially priced multi-course menus so the public can take taste their way through all the flavors that make our city delicious. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that most restaurants will order, will offer, for example, uh, maybe a $10 item, a $20 item, and a $30 item, your choice. And again, it gives you an opportunity to sample some of the offerings on that restaurant's menu, right? That's correct. So we have um, multi-course menus, so three or more courses. So your appetizer, your entree, and the dessert is your typical um, style. Sure. Uh, anywhere from 15 to, 15 to $54 uh, per person, plus your beverages, tax, and gratuity. So um, your listeners can go to our website and they can select the restaurants based on price point or their neighborhood uh, or the cuisine style and, and see what all the different menus are available. Okay, now let's talk about those participating restaurants, Lucas, because I can remember back when this thing just started getting lift off the ground. They had a few dozen. Now there's a few hundred. What's happened? <laughs> that's, that's correct. Well, in season one, back in 2003, we had 57 restaurants. And now, 19 years later, we have 365 Fantastic. across Metro Vancouver. Yes, and as you said, it's from West Van to White Rock. So, you know, given the the current public health restrictions that are in place that um, 
have us dining with our uh, immediate household and, and the request to stay in our communities. It's very easy for your listeners to follow those rules uh, and to eat at a restaurant that is within their community and to support those local businesses. And I think it's also important, if you would be so kind, Lucas, is to take a moment and remind people. Many of us have been, you know, doing the, doing our darndest to follow those orders. Some of us to the point where we have decided to exclude going out. Many people listening to us right now, Lucas, haven't been inside a restaurant in many, many months and would be surprised, or shall I say, will be surprised, if during Dine Out Vancouver they decide to take the plunge and go to one of their local restaurants. The COVID um, protocols that are being observed by the restaurant industry right across British Columbia are amazing. It's quite, it's easy to feel safe in a restaurant these days, isn't it? You're absolutely correct. And, and our number one priority in that of the restaurants is to ensure that we're keeping people safe and, and supporting the direction of the public uh, health order. Sure. Um, restaurants are operating at 50% capacity of what they would normally be. So tables are far more spaced out than what. Oh, did we, did we just, did Lucas just drop off, Julie? I think it was a cell phone and all of a sudden right there in mid-sentence, he, he went around a corner or perhaps, well, he better not be driving, he went under a bridge. No, he definitely doesn't sound like he's driving. Uh, the idea being, though, as Lucas is pointing out, that all of these restaurants have installed plexiglass. Uh, the, the, as he says, the tables are more uh, spaced out. If you go to many restaurants, you'll still see a stack of chairs in a corner and some tables pushed off to one side simply because there's no out, nowhere else for them to go and they needed the floor space in order to create the appropriate amount of room so when you do go with your small group you uh, will find the plexiglass partitions in place and the properly spaced tables uh, in order to feel a little more secure and a little safer about going there uh, the uh, the website is where you go all you need to google, do rather is google dine out vancouver uh, and uh, as uh, lucas was saying there are more than 350 spots around the lower mainland that's all of metro vancouver uh who are uh in a position to participate in all of this it goes from uh, february 5th to march 7th 31 full days it's produced by tourism vancouver the wines of british columbia are in on it as supporting groups and uh, the dine out vancouver festival as uh, lucas said is also one of the uh, most uh, one of the best known festivals uh, the website by the way is dineoutvancouver.com uh, taste the world vancouver style is what they invite you to do and of course it's all about to reservations and that sort of thing. So, Lucas, uh, thanks for jumping back in. We lost it and know what happened. But what about that? Uh, I mean, I'm you, not you, sure what happened either. Uh, well, you, you just, uh, I'm, I'm on to the reservations part now. We've only got a minute or so left. And if someone is in, in, you know, again, suppose now we've been waiting. We haven't gone out for a long time. But, you know, this Dine Out Vancouver, we've been going out for this for years. And maybe this is the opportunity to go out and mix it up with the folks a little bit. So, again, it's reservations only. There's no walk-ups. As that's also part of the deal these days, isn't it, Lucas? Well, that really is restaurant dependent. Okay. And our website will indicate whether or not reservations are required. They certainly are recommended, mm, but um, yeah. you know there there are restaurants where you can certainly arrive. Um, there may be a wait that you have, um, but your uh, listeners should be aware that you know uh, liquor sales in restaurants end at 10 p.m. 
so the the window of dining is much shorter than it would normally be. Right. Um, and for those listeners that uh, you know are still not comfortable with dining out, we do have over two hundred restaurants that are participating that are also offering a takeout version. Oh, there you go. Of their menu. So. Uh, yeah, so your listeners can still participate, can still support restaurants that are in their local communities, um, and can feel absolutely safe in doing so. Indeed. So dineoutvancouver.com, friends, is where you need to go. And when you get there, uh, the that's the festival website, and then you can search restaurants uh, by, by name, or you can go through neighborhoods, you can uh, search menu prices, you can uh, really customize your trip uh, to enjoy and perhaps discover a new Vancouver restaurant. Lucas Pavan, thanks so much for joining us again. It's been a while since you've been on the show, and we wish you considerable success with the 2021 edition of Dine Out Vancouver. Thank you very much, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. There's Lucas Pavan. Dineoutvancouver.com. Check it out. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.